Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the podcast today is Chris Gilbert, a director at Archer, an 11-person architecture practice with offices in Melbourne and Hobart. Archer are best known for their award-winning residential projects such as View House, Corner House and Sawmill House. Outside of their main design services, the studio is also busy selling their own range of lighting products, will soon be offering a selection of prefabricated home designs in the residential market and is currently building an advanced manufacturing facility that will be made available to other architecture practices in the near future. In this episode, Chris and I spoke about Archer's approach to social media that's helped them to gain 65,000 followers on Instagram, why Archer sees value in entering their projects into a variety of awards programs throughout the year, why it's important to make your work stand out, and how you can design your process to make producing distinctive and interesting work more achievable, what makes an ideal client for Archer and how they structure their client selection process, and finally, why Archer starts every project with a $10,000 concept design package. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Gilbert from Archer. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, mate. Pleasure. Any Anytime. We always start off with a little bit of an overview of the studio and what what's going on. Yeah, cool. So we, I think currently we've just got a small team. There's 11 of us and we're split between uh, Tassie and Melbourne, which is you know, obviously really great. We all studied in Tassie. Well, three of the directors studied in Tassie, so it's great that we've still got links down there. It's great that we've still got a few projects down there. And then the majority of the projects are probably in Victoria and predominantly, I would guess at the moment, mostly kind of regional. I'm from Yakandanda, like northeast Victoria. So we've got a few projects up that way. And yeah, really generally bespoke residential, but we've got a few larger kind of townhouse projects with MAP who have been a really great developer to work with. And then a kind of quite large project with Development Victoria, which is 300 townhouses out in Sunshine. But they're kind of almost outliers to the general kind of bread and butter, which is, yeah, residential one to $3 million kind of range. Yeah. Yeah, right. Gotcha. And so yeah. at what point, like in terms of the age of the practice or the history of the practice, when did the sort of mm. outlier projects, the public stuff, the regional stuff, like the non-single non residential stuff, when did that start coming into the mix? Yeah, pretty pretty early on, really, after we, I mean, uh, the, the practice kind of established itself off the back of Grand Designs Australia, which me and my brother built a house out in Yakandanda together. And then because that was filmed, obviously we got quite a lot of media attention from that and it won a couple of awards, so kind of built from that and that gave us a pretty big profile and luckily that kind of drew the attention of some larger practices, uh, one being Hable, who invited us to go in with a few competitions with them and luckily we kind of were able to get a few, which has been really great. They've been really great supporters of our practice and both as personal mentors and just like supporting what we're doing. So we were really, really lucky in that respect to 
Yeah, that is really yeah. that is really lucky, and also just a very unique pathway to getting, you know, to where you got to. I mean, Grand Designs Australia. That's the thing. The first time mm. someone's raised that as their like breakthrough moment on the podcast, yeah. and then leading to you know a partnership with a with a larger practice reaching out to you and starting off with that kind of collaboration. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and there's like really hats off to those larger firms for going out of their way to kind of make room for emerging practices at the time, like. It's, you know, pretty special opportunity yeah. and something that's definitely to be encouraged. And I'm pretty sure the state government are pushing that as a way to bring new kind of more competition into the market, essentially, by encouraging larger practice to work with smaller. And then, you know, over yeah. time, they yeah. develop into larger practices. Yeah, I was just going to say the grand design thing was definitely interesting. Essentially, like it's still getting rerun now, 10 years later. I don't know how much value that is in airtime, but I'd imagine... A shitload like for every year to have a 45 minute segment on primetime tv it's pretty special so yeah we're pretty lucky in that respect for sure yeah that's yeah. pretty amazing so after so have you been on tv at any point since or was that your big tv moment one and only? <laughs> yeah that's um i'm trying to think Pretty much, that's it. <laughs> yeah, so still, still milking it to this day. Ten yeah, years later, I love right. that. And that's in terms right. of that, in terms of when that show came out, and then Hayball kind of came to you guys and, and asked mm. you to participate in that thing. Once you had sort of developed a project out of that relationship, did that then put you in a position where you could almost stand on your own and go after that sort of public work independently, or did you continue to use those sorts of relationships with bigger practices generally? Yeah, yeah. So we continued for the, so we're doing, I think it's like uh, 60 townhouses, maybe maybe 80 in total with MAB at the moment. And that was with another collaboration with Hayball. So they're doing the large towers and we're doing the townhouses. And that is a kind of mix is like really nice as well. Like they take the kind of larger kind of statement pieces and then we get to fill in around the outside. And we, yeah, obviously we get exposure to those developers and get to know them and then kind of create our own partnerships from there. But no, still doing work with them and, yeah, hopefully, you know, we'll continue working with them into the future because, yeah, yeah, they're really yeah, supportive. That's and cool. We have actually spoken to other larger practices like BVN as well and, like, those larger firms, like, they're really open. Like, there's something to, to that for sure. So you've actually gone out and looked to approach some other studios as well. But I guess like the question is, is one good relationship kind of enough or do you sort mm. of need to, you know, to be able to have a big enough pipeline of those sorts of projects? I mean, do you need to kind of have multiple relationships with different studios, I guess, is the kind of the question. Yeah, I mean, if that was our only work, if we were relying on that, yeah. definitely. <laughs> we, but I guess it, it probably represents... Maybe twenty percent of our work. That's interesting. Maybe had a guess. Most yeah. of it is just residential. Yeah, new builds in the country and stuff like that. So, and, yeah. And at the at the time when they when they reached out to you, uh, Hayball reached out to you after Grand Designs. Yeah. As a practice, did you guys have any like special or unique skill sets as far as bigger multi residential stuff goes, or were you just a sort of normal residential practice at that point in time? Yeah, we're just normal residential. We'd won a couple of awards. We had credentials as far as, you know, design Mm. credentials. And I think that's probably what they were looking for, like kind of outliers maybe. And we weren't doing normative stuff like the sawmill house, like used alternative construction techniques. The plan is kind of not how you'd normally plan a building really. And now likewise, we were using like SIPs and things like that in Tasmania as well, which at the time, not many practices were doing. So I think it was that, that they they could bring us in to the meetings with Development Victoria and say, well, look at these guys. These are other to the normal normal large commercial architects and that this is the value that they bring. Yeah. And then we kind of just took that, you know, relationship forward. And I guess we, again, because we kind of design for construction rather than pursuing like a super high-end aesthetic, that does make a lot of sense in that kind of townhouse market where you have to be efficient because it is, you know, it's profit-driven, which is cool. Mm -hmm. That's fine. So you just need to be conscious of how your buildings go together and not care too much about what your facade looks like. You know, if your buildings are all about the facade, then that works pretty tough for you, I'd imagine. Yeah, Yeah, that's really, really, really interesting. So 
you as a as a practice, you uh, guys have this kind of multiple director structure, or I think four directors I saw on the website, right? So yeah, probably too um, many. <laughs> yeah, so top heavy to say the least. Yeah, top um, so heavy. Yeah. Very very top heavy. So you've got so you've got different different directors, and I guess do do you guys sort of have fairly shared roles and responsibilities, or do you kind of each have your? Are you like the podcast guy, and then they're the kind of, <laughs> yeah. and, they're, and they're like more back of house, or what's the sort of I guess yeah. in terms. Of, in terms of marketing communications, but I guess business development, I, I suppose just how do you sort of balance that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we're all very, very different people. And then so we all have our own skill sets and our own interests. So, yeah, generally I'm kind of more front of house talking to media and you know, kind of talking to clients. And I met clients for the first time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Chris Haddad also does a bit of that, but I guess I'm kind of more out in the kind of public realm where Josh – Fitzgerald, he takes a lot of the documentation and he's like an Archicad fucking whiz. He's got a very special mind and that's where he is really optimal. And then John Keitler, he has a landscape architectural background, but also an accounting background. And he's now actually leading up our offsite manufacturing company. So we've started a new company to do like structural window frames and stuff. Wow. So he's kind of leading that and kind of setting up a factory at the moment. And then Chris Haddad deals a lot with the kind of, he helps me in the front end with the kind of conceptual work. And then he follows a lot of the projects through to the kind of back end and does a lot of the contract admin and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah very segmented. And we think we get the most value out of the company that way. Uh, I mean, if I could go back in time a little bit. So when we first started, obviously we had this big, boost of work coming out of Grand Designs and we grew really quickly and we did a few large projects like Coroma on Collins in Sydney and Parks Victoria uh, office in Albert Park with Harrison and White. And at that point, we were at like 14 people and we were really fresh and we were just not good at running businesses. So we were just like, obviously, we're not good at management at this time because we were, you know, we're still just learning how to run an effective practice. So then we shrunk back down, but now we're starting to grow again. And through that growth, like the directors are kind of stepping back and allowing other people to kind of step back up into more kind of management roles. So, yeah, the directors are able to be more specialised, but a kind of a help help particular staff flourish in particular areas. So that's the general strategy yeah. at the moment. And it seems to be working much, much better. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the way you guys have structured your sort of working schedules and your workloads, I mean, do you do you find mm. that you get a decent amount of time in a typical week to work on business and marketing and comms and this sort of stuff? Is your workload pretty well balanced? I'm just curious if having more than one or two directors and having that structure at the top of the company creates a good environment for you to work on some of these bigger picture things yeah definitely definitely it helps you specialize rather than be bad at a lot of things you kind of moderate (laughs) one thing (laughs) but yeah definitely gives me a time to focus on what i need to focus on i wouldn't say there's not a, a balance i think going through like if you study architecture you go through that process and you push yourself really hard and then you come out the end of it and you continue to push yourself really hard so if there's any ever if there's any free time you fill it with something yeah. that is you understand to be valuable so I can see why people feel like they don't have much work life balance but in a lot of ways us particularly we do it to ourselves so we've got a lighting company and now we're starting this kind of advanced manufacturing company yeah like we could not yeah, do busy. that and have a much more relaxed yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. You just do it to yourself. I mean, definitely, yeah, probably don't exactly. need to start all these businesses. I mean, guys. Right? No. So, so you're are you kind of in that public facing role? If we're talking mm. about sort of marketing and communication stuff, you know, around new yeah. projects and stuff like the website and branding and social media and stuff, is that kind of in your camp or like how do you guys divide up that stuff? So my wife, Miranda, runs our Instagram account and that okay. is where we get the majority of our work through, I'd say. It's definitely, yep. definitely, a, yeah, a lot of people that come to us have followed us through Instagram and we just really let her do her, her own thing in that respect, try not to get away. Again, like I'm not a specialist at Instagram, like my what the fuck do my opinions count in that respect? And then for the website and stuff, 
so Sophie, we've got Sophie is our practice manager and she's amazing. She just deals with the website. So I just try to give people autonomy to do what they want really yeah. and, you know, everybody's working in the best interest of the company and everybody's just doing them and if they feel like they're attracted to something or want to put effort into something, then they do. So, you know, Sophie's taken the lead with the website, Miranda does Instagram and then Chris does kind of other bits and pieces but we don't have a like a strategy at all, at all, quite, quite the opposite actually. And that comes from a point probably of ignorance more than, oh, we've got this deliberate strategy of not doing anything. <laughs> it probably came out of... We studied at the UTAS and then RMIT and I guess there's that kind of, as an architectural student, you've kind of got this, you're, ignorance, uh, you're ignorant to the fact that you think that it's a meritocracy and go, if I just do the best work, we'll get the most clients. And that's clearly not true, <laughs> but we haven't adjusted our kind of model for that reality yet. Yeah, well, I mean, you've yeah. definitely done something right, right? So. Uh, it's obviously it's obviously working for you guys in terms of some of the things that you've done kind of intuitively have worked out to be, you know, really successful. And and maybe you've had, we touched on luck a little bit earlier. There's been some yeah. lucky breaks as well, definitely. definitely. But I guess, yeah. you know, in, in, in terms of this discussion and having you guys on the podcast and what other architects yeah. can kind of benefit from it, I'm interested in those areas where that have been really strong for your practice or have been your strengths. Instagram yeah. is definitely one of those areas, right? You said you're not the definitely. Instagram specialist and it's Miranda's no. kind of domain. But I mean, what what, what has been the key ingredient that set you guys apart on Instagram? I mean, you touched earlier on, you know, that you're doing kind of outlier work. Use that word outlier. You're kind of different to everything that's out there. But what do you think are some of the other ingredients that have helped to get you to 65,000 followers and, you know, as you said, all of your work kind of yeah. coming through Instagram in one way or another? Yeah. I mean, I feel like Miranda is really good at just being super honest to what we're about. We, we're really not into virtue signaling. Like, I fucking hate it. I don't. So we try not to get into that game at all. Yeah. And we just try to be, like, super upfront about what we're doing and kind of relaxed about it as well. We're definitely not this super high-end design firm. We're not super special. Like, Melbourne's, Melbourne's so competitive and there's some amazing mm. designers out there. So to go toe-to-toe with them in, oh, we're kind of, we're this and that, doesn't like that's not our brand we're just yeah. we yeah as i said we're kind of all from tassie or the country so we just try to take those values and be really honest with it through the platform through instagram and yeah i ideally like evidently like it it does work yeah yeah we just try to be honest really and brutally honest yeah what do you think that honesty is just not taking yourself too seriously as a brand or? yeah not <laughs> Just not being too serious and not being uh, like too in the game, if that makes sense. Like always talking about trends or trying to talk yourself up. Like we're, we're rather, I don't know, we try to communicate just what we're doing and what we're kind of interested in rather than, yeah, rather than kind of pushing any sort of other agenda. And I guess a lot of, and that's not to denigrate like a, what a lot of the other practices are doing. Like they, that's what they believe in and that's cool. Like I'm fundamentally really a believe in a lot of variation is what's important. That's what makes us flourish as humans, you know, variation and people can choose their own mm. adventure. But within that kind of broad spectrum of people looking for architects, I guess we want to sit back subtly and just say, let, let, and kind of push that meritocracy thing that I was talking about before, that if you like our work, you'll come to us. We don't want you unless, we don't want people that are coming to us so they can virtue signal to their friends because that's a bad yeah. client, right? That's someone yeah. that's buying an aesthetic. And that's where I feel we'd get into trouble. And like currently, I love all of our clients and I, I respect each of them and I've got time for each of them. And that's probably why we're able to do what we do because like people come to us because they, they want something that's maybe less about virtue signaling or about kind of signaling to their friends what that's type of person they are. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. guys kind of you kind of just really try to focus as much on just speaking about what you're doing and you kind of put the put the signaling aside and, and you just try and yep. keep it kind of quite focused on that. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah. In terms of yeah. bringing up this topic about kind of client selection and, and, and client yeah. quality, you know, being selective about the people you work with is obviously really important and is kind of a key. I mean, I tend to hear the same sorts of things generally about we, we want the clients to value design and like all these kinds of things tend to come up. But is there anything mm. kind of 
kind of more particular that that comes up for you guys in terms of what you like to do in terms of selecting clients? Like I've also had people on the podcast say, well, we don't actually stress about it too much. We always feel like we can sort of navigate our way through once we get further on to the project. So some practices are not so like they don't put pre- so much pressure on that first you know, meeting to be perfect. But what, what's your yeah. kind of stance on picking the right clients that are going to set you up for success? I, I really do think like our work does self-select more than other practices, I guess. And I don't know why that is, but generally the people that are coming through the door have a fair bit in common with us. So mm-hmm. I think we're probably starting from a slightly different position where there's more selection kind of bias happening through either our media or our work. I'm not sure what's exactly why. So there's there's less there's less emphasis on trying to filter out. Or maybe we're just not getting heaps of inquiries. <laughs> That's the other thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should be heaps busier than we are. Yeah, but the ones that do kind of make it through and they and Sophie, practice manager, does a little bit of filtering more around kind of budget location. And that's not suburb, it's just, you know, uh, we probably don't, we, we wouldn't really do any like inner city renovations anymore just because, you know, we just don't represent good value there really and things like that. So there's definitely a selection bias happening there, then the funnel kind of narrows. And then we have a, an initial stage where we do a concept, which is for a fixed fee, it's currently $10,000. And for that, they get plans, sections, you know, a fair bit of work, definitely more than $10,000 worth of value. And that process is that kind of final filter because we've worked with them, we've met them a few times. And then if we're aligned and that seed that we've developed together is quite mature and strong, then we'll continue forward with them. And, you know, obviously that first section is the easiest to deal with clients because it's all about ideas and fun. But when you move on to that, shit gets real when you get into the budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So we use that stage almost as the filtering exercise, the last the last hurdle. And if they get through that, that then it's all happy days. That's yeah. really interesting. So I'll come back to the fixed fee concept thing in a second, but I'm just interested mm. in touching on the comment you made about self-selection because I think that's such an important mm. thing, right? But it's always how do you do it? What is it about what you put out there that you think is helpful in that self-selection process? Is it the way you speak in interviews and profiles? Is it like how you describe your projects? Is it the copy that you write on your Instagram posts? Is it just, or is it just the projects themselves that they're not, they kind of not divisive in any way, but they like attract a certain group of people and they're not trying to be something for everybody. They're kind of only appealing to like the right type of client or what's your kind of thoughts on Yeah. I think it's a it's probably fifty percent between Instagram, like how that's yep. communicated and and what we emphasize in those posts, and fifty percent just of the work. They are like not remarkably different homes, but you have to be chasing a certain thing if you're interested in uh, our buildings. Like you have to be interested in performance. Generally, like it's a regional block, so that's a massive filter. So then all of a sudden, we've taken this massive sample of people that might be interested in engaging an architect. You're going to filter everybody in the city out, like that's a massive filter. So you're kind of competing in the regional markets. And then in that regional market, you're competing. The next filter is probably like the sustainability kind of side of things drop down again. And the next filter is probably probably to our detriment, like we're predominantly males. So most of the work is like somewhat masculine potentially. Mm-hmm. And again, this is just like without a heap of self-critique. So that's the kind of last filter. And then the majority of people we're getting are kind of well-educated females living regionally. That's probably yeah. the kind of normative client. And that's great. Then Yeah, and then the kind of in, Instagram's talking, like something in the kind of Instagram's talking to that group of people in a way that's successful. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So you actually, you actually have a fairly clear idea of your niche then, right? Because I think mm. that's not something that every every practice I speak to can articulate this idea of, you know, an ideal client or a typical client and having this like yep. core group of people that's not just necessarily a project type, but it's a certain personality or lifestyle or yeah, situation that somebody's in that we tend to find is reoccurring. That's yep. really, really great because I mean that must make certain things easier to know that that's kind of who you're speaking to and you don't have to try and broaden out your messaging to cater to 15 different groups of people. Yeah, that's true. 
And maybe, and maybe we should be, right? I get caught in this thing, gosh, oh, should we try to scale the business and get like really big? But then it's like, what are we, you know, what are we actually trying to achieve at the end of what are you, what are you trying to do with architecture? And that's kind of why we set up this other company, because ideally we want more buildings to be built at a higher like level of, and mm. uh, like more performative buildings being produced. And as one practice, even if we scaled to 50 people, you know, we might do 20, 30 jobs a year. That's not that's not actually achieving like the kind of, you know, the meta goal of what Archer wants to do. So we have to kind of think think about that problem a different way. And Archer itself can, as you said, be kind of, you know, limit its market to a certain group of people. And then we'll mm-hmm. have this other branch that goes out and tries to change the world every architect yeah. does. Yeah, wants yeah. to do. But I mean, your brand Archer is also having a broader impact on on architecture and design just through popular culture in terms of the way the work gets seen and the, audi- the size of the audience that's out there, right? So you are definitely, even if you're yeah. not doing, even if you're not necessarily working with that many clients, you're still having an indirect influence on the rest of the built environment, right? Hopefully that, yeah, we're kind of demonstrating our kind of values through our built work and you know, hopefully that resonates and helps drive a conversation around, yeah, living better. And even that, it's like, what does that mean, et cetera, et cetera. This is where I get real dark on myself, end up hating myself. But <laughs> anyway, we'll maybe we'll swing back to that. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. It does have, hopefully it's a net positive. Yeah, yeah. Ideally that's the outcome. It's hard to, it is hard to be, like morally justify yourself when you're in an industry that essentially generates a lot of waste and does a lot of kind of pretty bad things, you know, through the process of, and and fundamentally it's driven by egos as well, like ideas of how the world should be presented by a small group of people. There's, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, and this is where kind of like coming back to the virtue signaling thing, this is where like we can't kind of engage in that because as soon as you kind of dive deep enough on your own ego and what you're doing, like it all kind of crumbles pretty fucking quickly. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So do you think that that sort of hesitation you have about the limitations of some of the negative aspects of, you know, the architecture industry, do you think that that actually affects or has an impact on the choices you make about the direction you go with the business or how you kind of talk about what you're doing? Definitely. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's a kind of, yeah, an intellectual hurdle there that I, like, I haven't managed to cross yet, which is, I think it's fine. Like, I think it's fine yeah. to be kind of reflective on what you're doing in a really holistic sense because, you know, we've made this our lives and if you're going to kind of pursue that kind of honest life, then you have to kind of be really critical of yourself continually yeah. and it's not just about the money at the end intellectually you need that kind of intellectual honesty i think well i need that to be happy <laughs> so yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd rather be not as rich and more more yeah. kind of happy than <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely do, um, do you think that those yeah. clients that core group of clients that educated women in the in the regional area like that sort of like main sort of demographic do you think that yeah. they they also are kind of conscious of some of the contradictions, I suppose, or some of the like limitations in architecture that, you know, they're obviously treating themselves to kind of this amazing new house for themselves. On the one hand, they could be a client that could kind of convince themselves that by doing that, all they're doing is, you know, making the world a better place. Or they could be kind of have a more realistic view of, you know, maybe it is a bit selfish to have a really nice $3 million house in the countryside, (laughs) you know. Yeah, exactly. That sort of, that sort of, it's, it's like a tricky thing, but in terms of, yeah. you know, are you sort of, you're putting that sort of self-awareness out there of, oh, and, and maybe, you know, you mentioned your number one kind of word in terms of approach to social media has been honesty, right? So we're trying yeah. to be honest about some of these things. Do you ever yeah. kind of, do you feel that that's one of the things that you and your clients kind of have in common is this sort of more self-awareness? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and it's like yeah. kind of a running joke, you know, on site. It's just, yeah, whenever something comes up, it's just, well, you know, does this actually represent value to me or, or are we doing it, you know, purely out of yeah. ego as from a client's perspective and things like that. So, yeah, and those conversations, yeah, it's great that you can like both client and architect can take, kind of take the piss out of themselves in that situation and just be like, you know, what is the broader picture? What is the broader aspiration here for the project? And that, yeah, I, I fundamentally think that leads to better work as well because you don't get caught up on the fucking tile selection, you know. It's about what is the project trying to do, 
in a really broad sense. And if it's successful at that broad sense, the kind of smaller things don't matter so much. Yeah. Yeah, that's 100%. Like, when I'm just reflecting on all the cli- all of our clients and everybody is willing to kind of like step back from themselves, I guess, and kind of see their ego as a thing that's, you know, existing within, cult- within society. And that's super powerful yeah. and I-, I love that. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. So some of the key areas that you've thought about in terms of Archer has been obviously like social media, also very successful in terms of getting published and getting your work Mm. out there through that channel. Awards, obviously, working really well for you guys, always picking up kind of awards and things. So of those different areas, are there any in particular that you feel is something where you guys put a real effort and commitment into it? Like you think of it as something that's really important. Yeah, I mean, definitely publications are super important to us. And and that's not to say that they're not, they probably don't return the highest yield at all, right? They're probably more signaling to other people within kind of the architectural profession more than anything. But that that whole idea of architecture is a meritocracy, so you need to be really fucking good at what you do and then win awards because you are really good at what you do. And not, and not pursuing like, we're going to design this building to win awards at all, like our strategy is let's pursue what we're interested in, which is like this idea of how you construct buildings and let that be the point of difference because then we're outliers within the field, within the kind of architectural award and kind of media landscape. Like you don't get dragged into the aesthetic kind of competition because you're an outlier because you're pursuing like a very different agenda, which Again, this is not a criticism. I think like Instagram probably on net has driven, has made design better across the board because everybody's sharing and looking at things. But it does, again, just in my opinion, lead to more generic design or more kind of similar outcomes within trends. So if you're pursuing that, if you're looking at precedents and looking at Instagram all the time, like it's hard not for your work to be influenced by that, then be similar to that. So then when you do go to get published, you're less likely to get published because it's kind of the same as a lot of other things or it has similar traits to a a lot of other practices. So by pursuing a kind of outlier path, uh, which is like real a real studio agenda, which is like construction, better construction methodologies or you could choose anything else, but if you pursue this other path, then when you come back into the media cycle, you're kind of presenting like almost the outcome of that pursuit rather than an aesthetic pursuit, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Then like that, ideally, that so that because you're in media and you're getting awards, then you can kind of use those credentials that you've earned through that kind of peer recognition. And, you know, like a lot of the architectural media is just peer recognition, the, the uh, people that have studied architecture, et cetera, et cetera, then you can feed that back through Instagram. So it's kind of this loop. And then, you know, because we're pursuing that kind of slightly different agenda, we target like the people that are interested in us are a certain type of people and they go back through that filter and you kind of have that circle. I mean, I'd say our our, norm, our, our, our modal client is you know, a regional woman, but obviously there's a lot of other clients. Yeah. And within those, there is this kind of common interest in materiality and honest material, like mid-century modernism kind of is a kind of generic thing that people are interested in. And that gives us leverage then to pursue that agenda more and more and more. That makes sense. So it kind of has snowballed. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's the key. And it comes up in quite a lot about, you know, having a having a key kind of focus in in your work, Mm. you know, something that as a practice, you guys are kind of interested in or concentrate on doing and it sort of starts to become a bit of a specialty or you're specializing without necessarily narrowing to one type of project. It's not that kind of specialization, but it's going, we're kind of interested in how things are built and and performance and that's our top priority is kind of our interest in that, right? Then your work starts to become known for that and that's what your reputation kind of builds around and everything. But 
there are, a, I see that as a really common thing that's said by the best studios that they yeah. don't necessarily have to have the biggest marketing strategy in the world, but this really beautiful feedback loop develops where, that you just described where it continues to roll over that get gets more clients and awards and press, which more clients, more projects, more, and it's all kind of going in this beautiful cycle. But then there are other studios where they maybe aren't so clear about what they're kind of interested in as a, as a practice. They may, they may be a bit kind of like lost and all over the place going back and forth between lots of different ideas and things. And their work doesn't necessarily have like a, a really consistent thread through it in a lot of cases. I'd say like a lot of practices mm. are kind of in that spot. And each new sort of cycle of projects, they're sort of trying on a bit of a different hat in terms of what they're being influenced by as far as, you know, trend and what they see on Instagram and they kind of are a bit all over the place. And I sort of wonder like, do you just have to sort of have it in your DNA to have that sort of more, I guess, thought through approach in terms of what interests us? Can you sort of put yourself in the shoes of maybe a studio that wouldn't have quite had that click yet? Is there a way that maybe they can get back to you know, back on dry land in terms of having a focus and an interest, something that emerges in their work that becomes like more recognizable, more differentiated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and and again, if if you are like a practice that is more about trends, I, I don't see that as a particularly bad thing as well. It's just, you know, you do you. Fuck, every, again, we need like lots of variation and that's cool. If it's, if it's about like the interiors and the tiles, that's cool. Like I'm not saying that our way is definitely the best way or that we're you know, especially in any respect. That's just, again, what you choose yeah. to specialise in. So that being said, if, you, if you're trying to pursue an otherness, what we did is we just we just banned precedents. You're not allowed to go look at precedents when you're designing stuff. You're not allowed to be on Instagram and looking at, like, examples of other work and stuff like that because then, and that's, that's hard, right? It's hard not to pick up a magazine or to go, jump online and look at how other people have resolved things. And there's a kind of brutal two or three months as you wean yourself off that. But once you've come out of that and you find yourself like looking at different topics, well, uh, as from my perspective, I found myself like diving really heavily into economics and things like that. So, yeah, essentially it's like breaking a habit. Get rid of all the precedents you have, all of these notions about what an architect is. Spend a few months just meditating. So I, I meditate a bit on, you know, my own self and mm. who I am mm. and then pursue like the things that are other, interest me outside of architecture and use that to feed that back into architecture. And yeah. then I feel like that is like something that we probably don't do enough, like just separate ourselves from the stream and yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think like when we're trying to think about how do we get more more original thinking in the process, changing the input so that hopefully the output will be something a little bit different to what, you know, is already everywhere. Because I've had other guests on the podcast also raise this idea of if you're just doing the same sort of thing, it, at the end of the day, if your work's coming out pretty much similar to everything else that's coming out there, you're going to have a really hard time getting any getting any press publicity, attention, social media engagement. Like you're just not going to really get very much recognition around that project in a way. No, and it's probably doing yourself a disservice because a lot of those people are fucking good. You know, the work that they're producing yep. is really good, but yep. it's not other. That's really yep. good within the kind of context of the rest of the things that are happening. And it, yeah, it kind of represents a kind of loss of value, which is a real shame. Yeah, there's definitely no shortage of talent in our industry but there probably is a shortage of otherness or people that are willing to not run the kind of, you know, pretty much status quo, which is cool. That's fine. But mm. I, I actually think a lot of it comes out of uni. Like you're taught to kind of run off precedent and then look at these like great architects in inverted commas and that be your process rather than, you know, going out in the bush and really reflecting on what you are and who you are and, you know, being super critical yep. of yourself and I kind of joke to the staff that I spend like most of my day hating myself <laughs> like, telling myself that it's all a facade and like the, this last building is going to be the end of me and I think on net that's that's a kind of shitty world to live in for 80% of the day but on net it's a better outcome like a healthier outcome if that makes sense. 
Yeah, definitely. It's 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 good to have those like different parts of your process. I think two guests that come to mind in particular that have been on the show were one was John Elway, who when I kind of put the question to him about, you know, how do you have this otherness in your work, which is your turn, but that's actually quite a good way to put it. Like how are you doing work that's differentiated or has otherness? And he was like, I literally just spend a lot of time on site. And I find that not many architects mm. actually do that. And just by checking that everything's being built really well, <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. sometimes is kind of sometimes like is actually kind of the key to the outcome. So that was his like method point of difference that led to an outcome point of difference. Yeah, and then nice. I've had other uh, can studio in the UK. They were going, oh, we just try. It. We what we realized in our process was that clients are really scared of making their space personal because they're worried about who's going to buy it after them, which is this weird sort of subconscious thing of everyone needs to sort of worry about the resale of their property yeah. <laughs> and what we do what we realized is if we just sort of you know really got rid of that brainwashing with our clients and said make it personal you know do your own thing with it that yeah. enabled us to then start to have these more interesting influences in the project which made it different to all the white boxes that are out there like that every other architect is doing so i'm finding this pattern of that emerges of you know you 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 sort of do something, just something different in your process and it and it leads to these otherness outcomes. I feel like if the process, you just follow the exact steps or pathway that you were either trained in or worked at your old practice or whatever, then you can sometimes end up stuck in these more status quo kind of outcomes accidentally without even wanting to. It's just the process creates that in some ways. Yep, I 100% agree. And sometimes you're not even conscious that that's what you're doing. But that's okay. <laughs> ah, it works. It works. Coming back to something you touched on earlier was this this initial kind of fixed concept thing, which is another a topic that I'm really interested in. How do we offer our services differently as architects? Package them differently? Price them differently? And that that thing you brought up is really interesting. So, could you speak a little bit more to how that kind of works? So, is this like every client that comes in, every residential client, they come in the door? You're like, okay, the first step is this concept fixed fee thing, and then that's it. That's the choice. Or do you guys offer it as, you know, just explain to me a little bit more how that works, I suppose. Yeah, no, every every client that's the has to go through that kind of process with us and it's like super collaborative with them. So we meet up with them two or three times. So they come in and it's like, okay, sign, sign this agreement, which is they'll give us $10,000 up front and then we'll organize the survey for them, organize the geo and meet them on site and then... What we try to do, we call it kind of like we want to establish a really great seed from for the project to grow from. So we'll do for that ten thousand dollars, we'll do complete floor plans. We'll do take floor plans out of Archicad and put them in SketchUp and build like Chris Haddad's really great at SketchUp. He builds these beautiful SketchUp models. We really resolve the house to quite like a detailed kind of point. And then we have two iterations of that with the client. So we present the first one, we get the feedback and then have another run. And after that, if they're happy to proceed, we develop that idea. <clears throat> so we don't do three ideas, we don't do three options. It's just one option. And at the end of it, they get floor plans, they get to take the model. And if they want to walk away, that's fine. But generally, they keep going on with the process and I'd say nine times out of 10, they continue with it. And from that point, you sign a, a, a proper kind of engagement, lettering of engagement. But you've got such a strong seed to kind of push through the rest of the process. And or you've got a point that you can just depart and say, okay, this didn't, didn't work. And then so we take that $10,000 off the kind of traditional fee and then we go from there. We also don't bill on percentage of works. We bill on the size of the project. And that's just because mm -hmm. if clients want to spend fucking $30,000 on a nice fridge. I don't want 10% of that. That doesn't interest me. Or if they want to like spec fancy tiles, like it's, it's, we try to value yeah. the work that's required to do to procure a piece of architecture rather than a percentage of what the client's spending. Is that like a certain amount, like a fixed kind of amount that's per square meter or something? Or do you guys just have some like a bit of a scale of like different? square meters is different kind of percentages um, John's written a pretty complicated calculator but essentially there's a <laughs> <laughs> he's got a mad spreadsheet okay good that's it so uh, there's yeah. an initial like fee to just admin the job which covers like you know our administration and stuff like that and then a square meter rate from there so there's a there's a floor but there's not a ceiling really 
if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's really yeah. interesting. Do you find that because there's a little bit less risk involved yep. that like it reduces that sort of hesitation yeah. and terror? <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And I also find that it's, it's a bit more... Uh, well, for, so for some projects, it gives us an opportunity to compete with another practice but be paid for it. So we kind of, you know, mm. there's three or four jobs where we've been engaged and they've also got the other practice to do a sketch design and, like, it's a paid kind of competition, which wow. is good. And then for other people, yeah, they don't feel like they're locked into this massive journey with you when they've only met you once. It is a weird thing to commit, like, $100,000 plus to someone who you've only really engaged with through social media or had one or two meetings with. So, yeah, it's definitely, we call it a soft start, you know, and it is what it is. And $10,000, we used to, it used to be less, but we raised it just because the amount of work we're producing for that package is, like, really significant. And we used to, it used to be loss-leading, and now we kind of try to break even. But that $10,000 is a right, significant okay, enough gotcha. amount of money as well that people have to want to engage with you. They're not just going to be, like, you know, I think if we set it at two grand, we'd get a lot more people kicking the tires, if that makes sense. So it's another kind of filter, kind of like what we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah, exactly. It takes a certain amount of commitment yeah. and readiness and also, you know, ability yeah. to pay as well to to be able to actually start yeah. the process, which is really interesting. Do you guys ever find that you sort of get to the end of that $10,000 stage and go, you know what, we actually don't really think this is the right client, so they're keen to go ahead, but we're kind of, I mean, that must be a tricky thing to sort of get out of that. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It's okay, we got to this point and, you know, we think you guys should go probably take this design to someone else. Like, that's pretty, well, pretty awkward. So what the last kind of filter is, so because we've done so much work, we price that. And often it's more than, mm -hmm. you know, than it's expected, especially now because we're in an inflationary environment. And it's just like, okay, so your brief, like we've tried to make this as small as possible because we don't want to build big, you know, monstrous houses for no reason. But we've made this as small as we think is possible yeah. for your brief. And this means your brief, but it's at X, it costs X. Do you want to proceed? And then, you know, a few people dive out at that point as well, which is great because then they haven't gotten all the way yeah. through sketch design to get a QS to tell them that they're over. For $10,000, they know that the project, like their ambitions are probably above where the project sits, which is, you know, yeah. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a net positive yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, ideally, we're aiming for, and this is kind of off topic, but we really want to bring our fees down and we probably can't do that through Archer because of the nature of the work, but we are going to start essentially Archer prefab and it won't be set plans. It'll still be customised like completely customized floor plans, but the methodology will be fixed. And this comes back into the marketing. There's similar to what I was saying before, there's so many great architects in Melbourne and we're all competing for the top, top of the kind of income pyramid. Like the market's actually mm -hmm. quite small up here and that's probably why we don't need to have yep. too many filters to get good clients. But that's not, that's not enough for me, not like in a, in a money sense. Like I just think like we should have a bigger impact than this. So we need to be able to come down to like the, you know, sub 40 grand complete services fees or at least offer that as a way. And because yeah, our intuition is, and you might be able to tell me <laughs> if I'm right or not, that the, the market at that point is just going to be far broader than where we're competing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where, so you're thinking about developing a sort of, yeah, like you're saying, not house plans, but something that's a little bit more fixed, uh, a little bit less bespoke. Yeah then is it going to be also where people can get more of a like a tangible sense of what the design outcome looks like before they yeah. start so you know they can they they're not going into it going it's the normal architecture thing where it's a complete mystery what where we're going to end up it's i can sort of see the the vibe of the design that i'm interested that's in that's right yeah there's a, there'll be an aesthetic or a couple of aesthetics but because and this is why we started our own factory because in order to deliver at a known price point we need to be able to build everything ourselves to control that information. Yeah. And then, yeah, so there'll be less choice, but it'll still look like our work, you know. All, all the systems yeah. we've been developing over the last 10 years is leading to this point, enabling us to kind of scale at the yeah. next tier down. And then we're going to open up that facility to other architects through custom digital tools that we're developing to give out to other architects so they can engage in kind of much wow. bigger offsite 
advanced manufacturing facility, they can engage with it directly from their computer rather than having to go through kind of layers of, you know, companies and markups and stuff like that. We'll be able to deliver them real-time pricing for their designs as they draw. That, that's wow. scalable. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. And that's, that's <laughs> the kind of change. That's where, like, we really want to head because that, yeah, again, which, yeah. let's make the market bigger so more, like, more people can engage architects. But to do that, we all need to figure out a cheaper way of offering our services. And a lot of our services are just going and collecting information, you know, cost information, really. If you could, as you design, you had complete a kind of information pipeline coming in of prices, you could design and deliver a lot more work for a lot lower price. So, I mean, the dream is to completely commodify architecture. That would be awesome. That's really interesting. Do you, in terms of having these sort of these side projects, these different business lines and, and, and things like that. You've got the, you mentioned the Windows Advanced Manufacturing. You've got this new prefab project you're working on. You've also been, you know, selling yep. light, lighting products and different sorts of uh, industrial design things as well. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to have that big mix. I guess like from a marketing standpoint, whenever anybody's considering doing one of these sorts of projects, the first question they were always asking me is, should it be a new brand or should we mm. do it as part of the practice brand? and should it be sort of integrated into the practice and obviously it looks like you've kind of chosen at least with the like the lighting stuff to make it integrated into the practice so i see that stuff on the website it's not its own name off on a separate you know platform by the looks of it do you feel like with these other projects you're going to do the same thing where it's just going to be sort of a a chapter or a, a component within the yeah, Archer brand? Yeah, it will. For the Archer prefab, it will be within our brand because, yeah, as you said, like we've got such a strong social media following, it would be crazy not to leverage every one of those eyeballs and then just say, because a lot of those, you know, a lot of people our age, we, we can't afford the buildings that we're building, but a lot of our followers are kind of, mm. you know, not dissimilar to us. So mm. you've You've got a great kind of market there to be like, okay, we can deliver you this thing at a price that you can actually afford. And the barrier to entry, like we really need to lower that boundary barrier to entry to extend the market is much lower so you can come into this new marketplace and architecture isn't then just for the elites, it's for everything else. But then, the, so that'll be Archer Prefab, but then the actual advanced manufacturing facility is going to be branded as Canda and offer yeah offer those digital okay. tools direct to architects so they can procure work wow yeah can we sorry can we just pause for a second i've just got a flexi car that's 30 minutes over, yeah. overdue well let's 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 finish up there chris thank you've got to run off and return your flexi car yeah thanks for having me and yes yeah, great to chat i look forward to talking more in the future it's, yeah you're doing a you're doing a great service cheers appreciate it mate thank you That was my conversation with Chris Gilbert from Archer. If you'd like to learn more about Archer, you can visit archer.com.au or follow them on Instagram at archer followed by an underscore. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.